My uncle came and told me the day that I was getting married, he said, uh, one of the things I try to tell your aunt on a regular basis is that I love you more today than I did yesterday, but not as much as I'll love you tomorrow. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be wonderful in a Christian's life if we could say that to the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, I love you today more than I did yesterday, but not as much as I'm going to love you tomorrow. And that our Christian life will be a continual growth in trying to draw closer to God. Our walk with God is the most important thing in our life. And certainly we look forward to that. Let's take our Bibles this morning, if you will. Turn to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter number 7. We're only going to be here for just a moment. And uh, then we'll be moving over to the book of Numbers. Second Chronicles, chapter 7. Very familiar passage of Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll begin reading in verse number 14. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14. The Bible says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Father, we come to you this morning once again ask that you would bless the message. And Lord, I pray that the truth of it will come through, that it will be something that will encourage and strengthen our faith. I pray that perhaps it will be something that will guide and direct us instructionally in our lives, perhaps even bring some reproof in some areas. And Lord, we don't like that one as much, but it is needful from time to time that you reprove us, that we see the areas that we've been wrong in and ask that you would help to guide us in the right way. Because, Lord, our heart's desire is that we honor and glorify you and please you in our life. I pray that you would help us as we go through these verses, that you will help to open it uh, to our hearts, that it will illuminate and be able to make uh, perfect sense. And then, Father, I know that it matters very little what I say uh, this morning outwardly. But, Father, it sure makes a great deal of difference what your Holy Spirit will do in the hearts of men. And so this morning, I ask that you would do a work. That this would not just be another service that we come to and then leave. Lord, that you would do something special that as we leave this place, we know that our hearts have been stirred. And that your Holy Spirit has done his work. Draw us closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We find here a very familiar passage of Scripture. And it's interesting to me, I have written in my Bible here four steps to revival. And a lot of folks have preached on this verse and broken it down. And there certainly is a a kind of an outline here, if you don't mind saying it that way. As we look in verse 14, uh, he says that if my people which are called by my name, and then he asks them, uh, he gives four requirements. He says, first of all, that they humble themselves. And secondly, that they pray. Thirdly, that they seek my face. And fourthly, turn from their wicked ways. And when we look at this passage, we find a great promise that God gives here. That if these four conditions are met, uh, the Bible says, then will I hear from heaven. And we all understand this morning, do we not, that God hears everything, right? We understand that. The psalmist said, it doesn't matter where I go. He said, if I make my bed in heaven, uh, or if I go to heaven, thou art there. If I go to the depths of hell, make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the earth and the, the corners of the earth, he said, behold, even uh, thou art there. And so we understand that God sees it all. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and God came to the garden in the cool of the day and said, Adam, where art thou? We understand that God knew where Adam was, right? 
reason he was asking was not so he would know where Adam was, but so that Adam would realize where Adam was. And so we understand that when we read a verse like this, and it says, then will I hear from heaven, that God is not saying here that he doesn't hear these things. It just gives the idea that he will then listen carefully to it. He'll give heed to it. He'll act upon it. And so we find here that there are four things that are given. Uh, I called them in my Bible, four steps to revival, that God would hear from heaven, he would forgive their sin, and he would heal their land. We find all three of these things. I find it interesting to note that revival does not begin in the hearts of lost people. Revival begins in the hearts of God's people. As we get to verse 14, he starts this verse by saying, If my people which are called by my name. And so often, uh, and and we're all in the same boat. I do it as much as anybody else. So often we sit around drinking our cups of coffee and talking about the condition our world is in and uh, saying, boy, I'll tell you what, we sure have a a world that in my lifetime has degraded drastically. I mean, things that I would have never thought I would see when I was a kid, uh, I've seen now in my lifetime. And we look at the world. And by the way, it ought not to shock us. The Bible says that in those end times, in those last days, the Bible says it this way, that the world is going to wax worse and worse. It's got to happen. If we're expecting the Lord to return, which we are at any moment, then we know these things will happen. It ought not shock us, but it ought to break our hearts. It ought to be something that we look at and with a heart that is broken because of so many who do not believe. And folks, we've got to come to a realization that eternity is not just a length of time that happens and then it's over. Eternity goes on for infinite years. It goes on forever and forever and forever. And those that are lost, the Bible says, will be cast into the lake of fire. Not for a period of time, but forever. And all that we would have our eyes opened to eternity... That there will be people we'll pass by this afternoon on our way to lunch that are lost and headed to hell. And one of these days, unless God brings someone along to share the gospel with them, and His Holy Spirit convicts their heart and they see their need of a Savior, and unless they put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, those folks will perish for eternity. Are we understanding this? Do we really have our eyes open to the importance and the seriousness of eternity. If we did, I believe we would be doing everything in our power to seek for God's revival in our hearts. That God would stir us afresh and anew and give us a renewed vision and desire to reach the lost. We get to this portion of Scripture and the writer here says that if my people, which are called by my name, he gives four requirements. He starts off by saying, if we'll humble ourselves. When I was in college, I had a professor that had the same assignment for every class he taught. It didn't matter which uh, class that he was teaching. He had one outside assignment that he required every class to do. And that was during that semester, we were to look up every verse in Scripture that had to do with proud or pride or haughty. And we were to write every verse of Scripture out and to write a thought underneath it that it was teaching us about pride. We all went through the process of doing that, and as a college student, you don't always realize 
the value of what you're getting when you're doing these things. You're doing them as a class assignment because you're getting a grade for it. But I'll never forget as we handed those projects in at the end of the semester and the teacher had them all stacked up on his desk. I can still picture in my mind's eyes. I watched him and he went over and sat on the corner of his desk. He said, gentlemen, what have we learned from this project this year? And several folks began to raise their hands. And they would give an idea of, of one of the verses that had struck them perhaps that they had studied. Pride goeth before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. And maybe they would quote a verse and quote a thought. And he sat there as four or five of these young men raised their hands. And he said, that's true, but I think you've missed the point of the lesson. As several of them made the comments, and then finally the rest of us realized that we were not going to get the answer correct. He finally said, gentlemen, he said, what I want you to learn from this project is that every sin in a man's life has its root in pride. I remember as a 17, 18-year-old college student who, who was very smart back then, by the way, uh, isn't it amazing how much you knew when you were 17, 18 years old? I don't know what happens as we get older, but we don't know near as much as we did when we were that age, do we? And uh, I remember thinking there's a 17, 18, 19-year-old kid thinking, man, I don't know that I agree with that statement. And I began to think through some different sins and things, and I thought, no, wait a minute. If you go back far enough, then sure enough it has its root in pride. One of the great deterrents of revival, I believe, is the fact that God's people can't get over pride. It's one of the great abominations. In fact, God looks at it with such disdain that He groups it in the same list with homosexuality and believes that it's an abomination. But we don't tend to hate pride in our lives, do we? So it becomes one of the great battles of the Christian life to seek this thing of humility. I heard a fellow say years ago, and I've, I've used it several times, a friend of mine and I would joke around about it. He said, I've written a book on the ten most humble men and how I've trained the other nine. And isn't it amazing that about the time you start to get humility, you get proud of your humility. And uh, I told my friend the other day, we were talking, and we joke about this book that we're writing, and I told him, I said, we're going to come up with a sequel on the road to humility and how I walked it. And uh, we get proud about our humility sometimes, don't we? I heard a fellow say it this way one time, and I love this definition of it. I've never found a better definition for humility than this. He said, Humility is not thinking more of ourselves than we ought to, neither is it thinking less of ourselves than we ought to. He said, It's simply not thinking of ourselves. I thought, boy, what an amazing definition to humility if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and secondly he says and pray we've done lessons and we've preached on praying how we're to be instant in season and out of season we're, we're to be ready to pray at any time we're to pray without ceasing we're to have a prayer of thanksgiving a prayer of supplication we're to have uh, prayers that are uh, spending time with God and just worshiping him and then we've talked about uh, the urgency of prayer and the fervency of prayer. And uh, we've preached about prayer quite often. 
But what is it when we're dealing with this issue that we find here in Second Chronicles chapter number 7 and verse number 14, what is it that we find that we ought to be praying for? If we look at the end of the verse, we find that the burden on the hearts of the people are this, that God is not hearing and answering their prayers, God has not forgiven their sin, and God certainly has not healed their land. And so these are the things that God has said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here we ought to be praying for. Hold your place here for just a moment. If you will, turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter number 14. Numbers, chapter number 14. Just last week we dealt with the issue of uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and how they uh, were presenting strange fire to the Lord. The idea that uh, God got angry at Aaron and two weeks ago dealing with the calf that Aaron had made and uh, for the Israelites to begin to worship this idol. And Aaron tries to mix the idol worship with a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and God gets angry. If you remember back in Exodus two weeks ago, God tells Moses, he said, I'm going to... I'm going to wipe all these people out. And he said, I'm going to start a new nation with you. And what does Moses do? Moses comes to God and he says, whoa, wait a minute, God. And he goes, he goes to God on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he stands between God's wrath and man's sin. And by the way, I love that picture because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does today. He stands between God's wrath and man's sin. And the Bible says that he is an advocate for us. The Bible says that He is up there at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. And aren't we as Christians glad of that today? Amen. I'm thankful that when I'm doing things that are not right, that I still have an advocate with the Father. Oh, what a Savior that we have. We get into the book of Numbers, and the children of Israel have quickly gotten to the place of going to into Canaan. And uh, <coughs> Moses decides as they're camped there, with Canaan land inside, it's right on the horizon and the promise that God has given them and God has brought them safely and miraculously through the wilderness. He's delivered them from Egypt. And, and, and I don't know how anybody could go through and see with their own eyes the things that God had done for the nation of Israel up until this point and to then be at the very threshold of the promised land and to sit there and to begin to doubt that God was going to do something miraculous to get them in there. But Moses sends in the twelve spies. And when I was a kid, we sang a little song. Twelve went down to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad, but two were good. And two of those spies named Caleb and Joshua were the ones who came back and gave a favorable report. The other ten came back and said, we're as grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants in the land. They're strong. They're a strong people. The Bible says, as we get to Numbers chapter number 14, and you will look with me in verse number 6. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey, only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. 
for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Boy, if you read that part of Scripture, your heart's already starting to, to, to boil here. I mean, you can almost feel the patriotism. You can almost feel the faith that Joshua and Caleb had as they go before the people. They said, it doesn't matter how strong this people are. Our God is stronger than that people. Amen? And boy, I tell you, you can almost get stirred up. It might, uh, might make a Baptist shout if you hear something like that. I mean, you might hear a message like that. Some preacher get up and talk about how good God is and how strong God is and how God can overcome the battles of our lives. And somebody might even say an amen. But I want you to notice in verse number 10, But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And look at this. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses... How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and a mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, For they have heard that Thou, Lord, art among this people, that Thou, Lord, art seen face to face, that Thy cloud standeth over them, and that Thou goest before them by day in a pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. Now if Thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard Thee, uh, the fame of Thee, will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring His people into the land, which He sware unto them, therefore He hath slain them in the wilderness." And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken. Saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. I want you to notice some things here that when the nation of Israel was in dire straits and a lack of faith and denying the power of God. And by the way, does that not describe the society we live in today? That when God came to Moses and said, I'm going to get rid of this people. I'm going to disinherit them. I'm going to cut them off. And I'm going to make of thee a great nation. I want you to notice what Moses now does for a second time. He comes before God. And Moses petitions God. And I want you to notice two things specifically that he deals with here. It's interesting to me that as he says in verse number, verse number 15, Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. Now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken. I want you to notice that Moses was concerned about God's glory. And by the way, that's the reason we were created, is it not? To bring glory to God. 
that we live in a day where, to be honest with you, our Christian folks that are brothers and sisters in Christ have become so scared and anemic in the world that we live in today that we're afraid to bring out the glory of God to a lost and a dying world. We're afraid to go out here and talk about His power and His great might and His goodness in our lives. We are timid and we go through our lives saying, well, I don't want to be offensive. We have preachers that are standing all across America today in in so-called churches that are standing up and telling their congregations, we don't want to be offensive. Let's just love one another. Can I tell you this? There is no more loving a brother or a lost person than telling them that the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sins. That's the greatest love. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friend. You say, well, Brother Greg, it might offend somebody if I tell them a sinner. They already know. There's not a man that's been born that doesn't know he's a sinner. They already know they're a sinner. Well, Brother Greg, it might be offensive if they find out that God came to condemn them in their sin. No, God didn't come to condemn them in their sin. They're condemned already, according to John 3 and verse 18. He that believeth not the name of the Son of God is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the Son of God. What is it that we're telling him? We're telling him John three seventeen. For he came not into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be. How is that offensive to somebody? Telling them the greatest news they've ever heard in their life. How is that offensive to somebody? For far too long, I believe God's people have tried to, to, to with, with fear, tried to uh, get, uh, get folks saved by their, their way that they talk. And they start talking to people, well, if you don't trust Christ as your Savior, uh, you're going to be condemned. No, wait a minute. They already know they're sinners. By nature, they know they're sinners. And yes, they are already condemned. But the great news that we so often fail to emphasize in telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ is that even though we are condemned, God loved us so much that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't we glad of that this morning? Amen. I'm glad of that this morning. I hope we never get over the fact that we're saved. And there's a world out there that needs to hear the glory of God, that this God who had no reason to love us, He loved us still. That this God who had no reason to forgive us, He forgives us still. That this God who had no reason to come to this earth and die on a cross in our place, came to this earth and died on a cross in our place. And our people need to hear the glory of God once again. Moses said, Lord, if you do this thing, then your glory is going to be trampled through the nations. They're going to say that God could not deliver his own people to the land that he had promised them. Lord, therefore I'm asking you that you show yourself in your great might and your great power. And by the way, we walk around in a world thinking, boy, I just don't know that revival can come today. Brother Greg, I just don't know if we can win people to Christ in the day that we live. We deny the power of God. We may have a form of godliness. Our world is starving today for God's people to stand up and say He is the God of all gods. And He has all right and all authority and He has all power. And When we look at ourselves, it's amazing to us that He loved us.
I want you to notice not only was he concerned with the glory of God, but as we get to verse number 19, <coughs> verse number 18, excuse me, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. If you have a pen and you're in the habit of underlining, you ought to underline that passage of Scripture of great mercy. How great is God's mercy? Is there ever a time that God's mercy is exhausted? Is there ever a time? I know as a parent there's times my mercy gets exhausted. You ever been there? Some of you have been parents. Now, if you're grandparents, your mercy never gets exhausted, right? But as a parent, our mercy gets exhausted sometimes. We come to our kids and you said we tell them something like this. You're about to get on my last nerve. My mercy is almost exhausted. I mean, we're scraping the corners of the barrel for the little bit of mercy that's left in my heart as a parent. Can I tell you this morning that God's mercy never even comes close to running out? He is a just God, yes. But He has offered to every man, no matter how bad he is, a way of escape. He's offered to every man a measure of His mercy. And it's inexhaustible. As you get to the end of Romans chapter number 5, the Bible said where sin abounded, grace did much more about. There's not enough sin in this world to exhaust the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say in chapter number 6, because some people would look at that and think, well, then I can go out here and sin all I want to because I cannot exhaust the grace of God. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, no. That's not what Paul's saying. He said, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're made alive unto God. The old flesh ought to be crucified with Christ. Moses, concerned about the condition of his people, comes to God on behalf of them and stands between His wrath and their sin and says, God, I want Your glory to be held high. And I want the world to know of Your great mercy. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and and transgressions and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned And I want you to notice these last four words. According to thy word. I wonder if God would pardon our country, our society, our our world today according to our word. Are we that broken hearted for it that we would intercede on their behalf, that we would pray for them? 
That God's glory would be lifted high. That His long-suffering and His inexhaustible mercy would be displayed in a mighty way. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, what do we pray for? For God to be glorified and for His mercy to be given to all men. Kind of puts an emphasis on getting out and telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Both to glorify Him and to show men their need of a Savior. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And I want you to notice thirdly, turn from their wicked ways. Say, but Greg, I don't know that I have any wicked ways. The psalmist was so concerned not only about his open sin, but even sin that he was not aware of. <clears throat> the psalmist wrote, Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. He goes on to say, I, as he's speaking of God, he says, I am he which searcheth and trieth the reins of the heart. The Bible teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The only one that knows the heart better than you and I is God. And there are times we ought to come to Him and say, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. It's a hard prayer to pray. Because if there's something there, He'll show it. But it's needful. You know why many times we as God's people never pray a prayer like that? Because we like our sin. The, 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 the worst sins that there are are other people's sins. They're never mine. I, I like my sins. Isn't that the way we think? I, I don't want to pray and ask for God to show me. If there's any wicked way in me, He might show it to me and I might have to give it up. And turn from their wicked ways... Are we doing these four things? Are we humbling ourselves? Are we praying? Are we seeking God's face? Are we turning from our wicked ways? I wonder, in the day that we live, if we realize the urgency of the hour that we live in. I don't know if you hold to this or not, but I believe that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. I believe it's going to happen at any moment. And if we're ever going to do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, we must do it today. We cannot sit back and say, one day when I get time, I'll do more to reach people with the gospel. We can't sit back and say, one of these days I'll trust Him as my Savior. I'll get saved one of these days. We can't sit back and say, one of these days I'll live for the Lord. Right now, I just want to live my life. I'm content with just giving God a token here and there. Having just enough religion and just enough Christianity to let people think that I'm a good person. Where are those that are committed to Christ? Where are those that are sold out for Him? Where are those that have longed 
to walk with Him on a daily basis. To seek for His power upon their lives. That they may accomplish the work He's given us to do. If you're here this morning, you say, Brother Greg, I don't know if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I, I, I've done good things. I've lived a good life. But, boy, I sure don't know if I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Can I tell you this? God loves you. He loved you so much He came and died on a cross in your place so you wouldn't have to. He doesn't make it hard. Aren't you glad of that? He doesn't make us earn it. We couldn't if we had to. He simply says, I want you to put your faith in me. I want you to put your trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. If you never trusted Christ as your Savior, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will show you that need today and you'll get it settled. Say, Brother Greg, I've been in church a long time. It doesn't matter. I sat in church as a pastor's son for 13 years. Lost. You can go to church. You can live a good life. You can fool a lot of people into thinking you're saved. But unless you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone, you're not saved. Now, I don't mean to scare you this morning, but folks, we've got to get that matter settled if it's not done. Say, Brother Greg, I know I'm saved and I know I'm on my way to heaven. My next question to you is, are we concerned that God do something in our lives? That He would send forth His power? That He would hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land? Are we concerned enough to do these four things this morning? Are we concerned enough to pray for our country and Go to the Lord on their behalf. That God's glory would be shown through our lives. That His mercy will be proclaimed by our lips. Are we concerned enough about that? I wonder what it is that maybe God has spoken to your heart about through the message this morning. And if He has, I wonder how we're going to respond to it. We have gotten away from the idea of conviction in the day and age that we live. People's hearts are pricked like they were when Stephen was preaching. The people were angry and ran upon him and gnashed on him with their teeth and stoned him. We look at things like that we call it conviction. That's the Holy Spirit pricking our hearts. And yet in the day we live we call it being offended. That offended me, Pastor. No, wait a minute. That's just, that's just the Holy Spirit doing some things. I'm not saying a pastor can't be offensive. But folks, all we've tried to do this morning is tell you about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can rest assured that that's not offensive. And if God has pricked our hearts this morning, it's not offensive, it's conviction. And we ought to respond appropriately to it. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that you would use it to do your work in our hearts. Lord, it does not matter what Brother Greg thinks or what I say. It really does not. But Father, eternity is too long. The price 
is too great. That we would not wish for your Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts. Lord, if there's someone here that's lost that does not know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day they would allow us to take your word and show them how they can be saved. There are Christians here today, I pray that you would help us to have a desire. Lord, put a burden upon our heart. Give us a zeal. Stir the embers of our heart as we seek for revival. We seek for your stirring of your Holy Spirit to do his work in our midst. We would see lost come to know you as their Savior. That We would see your people getting their hearts right with you. Father, that these things would happen in our lifetime. We pray that you bless the invitation. Lord, use it as you would see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ted's bowed, please. And I